You are listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about this show, as well as the other show I do, How to Stan, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com and subscribe to my newsletter at howtostan.substack.com. K-pop interviews, album reviews, and more. Subscribing is free, but if you want to continue to support my work, feel free to donate. Click the support the show button on the homepage at 17karatkpop.weebly.com. In 1833, the New Dictionary of Medical Science and Literature added the term musicomania, a condition some people were coming down with, where, quote, the passion for music is carried to such an extent as to derange the intellectual faculties. So this was actually not just a term that entered the American vernacular, but was labeled a diagnosis, a medical condition. During this time frame as well, roughly 1830s to 1870s, this is when concert going became a hobby, and Jenny Lind toured America. That is really the first time there was a fandom before the name fandom. All the hallmarks of fandoms that we know today. You could buy Lind merch. Lind became people's style icon. They were dressing like her. They wanted to be her. They wanted to look like her. And right out of the gate, of course, newspaper writers were comparing her fans to a plague a la Bieber fever terminology. So fans were viewed as this just chaotic, hysterical force from the very beginning. And actually, P.T. Barnum was Lynn's tour manager. The P.T. Barnum. And he faced heavy scrutiny as well for what people dubbed this exploitative level of excessive merchandise selling for his ex. In what was dubbed puffery. Yes, puff pieces were criticized even back in the 1800s. As we have talked about at length on the show previously, the power of fandoms has always been underestimated, written off, belittled, treated like some sort of ill on society, a mad rush to the worst instincts of humanity. Fandoms have been portrayed in such a negative light and have been described as if they are monoliths and these very basic watered-down concepts. When within fandoms, as I always get on my soapbox about on this show, there's a real subculture with each fandom. A really cool, unique way of talking about faves, engaging with each other in person and online, mobilizing, the fan-driven media landscape, economy. Fandoms truly change the world, and so they don't deserve to be just written off. They deserve to be really dissected and not blanketly labeled toxic. And I would like to help refute some of the negative claims that those critics have made dating back to the 1800s by breaking down the research that shows, actually, the feelings of fans are pretty common among people who don't consider themselves fandom members either. It's just a very unique way to have an outlet for those emotions, but they're very human reactions. That's the backstory behind me wanting to do this episode. Well, we're just going to talk about, for obvious reasons, 17 different studies from medical journals of all kinds that I've read. Social, psychological, and personality science, music perception, psychology of aesthetics, university studies, the journal of psychomusicology, current psychology, the journal of individual differences, a lot of different scientific publications. 
I really got into the nitty-gritty of 17 different studies and combined my big takeaways, my big broad takeaways, to share with you all. I did the heavy lifting for you. You are welcome. Yes, I tried really hard to get this to be exactly 17. So I did take into account way more studies, but it's basically 17 categories. Sometimes multiple studies roped into one category, but anyway, at the end of the day, we're talking about 17 areas where the research shows why we like the music that we like, why we feel such a strong attachment to it, and hopefully by really digging into the roots of why we are so passionate about the music we are passionate about, people will realize it's not so weird after all. Along the way, I will of course bring K-pop analogies into the picture as well, as is my custom. So first, let's talk about getting physical responses to hearing music. For the sake of time and interest, I'm not going to rattle off all of the backstory behind each study conducted, its survey limitations, sample size limitations, etc., but I will include all the citations on my site as always. Anyway, let's dive into this now. People with physical reactions to music, tearing up, getting literal chills, etc., are linked to this personality type described as open, open to experiences. And naturally, they are also people linked to a higher level of appreciation for art and music overall. This you could connect to K-pop because studies show that a fact can be 22 times more memorable when a story is attached to it. So usually what people say is it's 22 times more memorable when a song is attached to it. And that may be true as well. But really any story, any backup, anything that paints a picture helps visualize something. Like PEMDAS in math. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally for the order of operations, that type of thing. It doesn't have to be a song that brings an image to mind. So it's no wonder K-pop fans like myself are so passionate about our faves' work and know so much about them. Non-K-pop fans all the time are like, how do you know the names of every member of Seventeen, NCT, etc.? And to me, it's not an impressive feat, it's just common sense. And that's because I associate them with a story, with a music video universe, visual moments, with memories. And I also like to think I do have that personality trait described as an openness to experience, which is why I listen to music from all over the world. I don't let language be this barrier that makes me think, hey, I'm not going to try to get into that music. Which may be why music does affect me deeply. I physically react to music all the time. There's interesting research way back from 1999 that still holds up really well. That is really interesting in hindsight. So back in 1999, these researchers argued there was a need to redefine social psychology when discussing it in a music-based context. And they vouched for an increased focus on the social aspect of social psychology. And they said this approach to studying music and how people react to it, the research methods would have to adjust to changing music consumption patterns and demand and distribution. Because they cited a rise in the use of personal computers. And they predicted more algorithms, more streaming ability, variables enhancing the individualization of your music listening experience. 
They also cited more shifting in blending of genres, with the internet enabling more collaboration among artists, and they cited changes to a musical, instrumental, digital interface. Basically what they called an increasingly sophisticated digital language used to send information directly to and from consumers. In this case, they were really referring to the actual process of constructing a song, like this new digital language, as they called it, regarding how to produce a song, and maybe produce it alongside someone else. But it could be applied to other things, too, because consumers, music listeners, do have this new access to artists, and therefore this new digital language to work with. This really, really groundbreaking work, really famous, is Alan P. Merriam's The Anthropology of Music. And he broke down the 10 main categories music serves in our lives. So picture your favorite artist, who you are a ride or die stand for, and see if they fulfill maybe even all 10 of these human needs that music can help with. Aesthetic enjoyment, entertainment, physical response, communication, meaning the message the music sends, emotional expression, symbolic representation, meaning less about what the music represents and how it's a conduit for other messages, enforcing conformity to social norms, meaning you kind of like them because it's popular too, validating social institutions in religious rituals, kind of similar to the conformity argument, Contributing to the integration of society, I would assume that means kind of embracing differences, and contributing to the continuity and stability of culture, moving the culture forward and maintaining it. He also said the three primary ways social functions of music manifest themselves are in your mood, self-identity, and interpersonal relationships. So we've talked about physical responses more broadly. How about crying? Why do we like sad music? Apparently, if you like it, if you like bawling your eyes out, listening to sad music, even when you're sad, not wanting to cheer up, but music that will allow you to wallow, you may have personality traits linked more with art appreciation again, appreciation for aesthetics, that mood setting, as well as more empathy than other people. As for music that brings comfort, neuroscientists have pinned down what they see as the song that reduces anxiety more than any other in the world, an up to 65% reduction. If you listen to the song Weightless by Marconi Union, this team of scientists and sound therapists worked to make sure the music playing was associated with lowered cortisol levels, aka less of the stress hormone. Interestingly, sound therapists have also found that the relationship between a music therapist and client is arguably just as important as the music itself when determining the effectiveness of a music therapy session. Side note, you know me, I'm open about my mental health, I've tried different kinds of therapy, and I have done music therapy. And I recommend it. It actually, it helps more than you think. It's not just some quack job. It's a real, legit, helpful form of processing feelings. We've talked about music and emotions. Now let's talk about music and personality types. A Canadian university found something really interesting. 
they had participants listen to music, answer questions, listen to music, and then answer the same questions. After listening to an instrumental, there was a rise in the change of traits in the responses, while songs with lyrics were linked to a decrease in the change of responses. That's interesting because I thought it would be the opposite, but maybe the instrumentals give you time to let your mind wander and therefore come to different answers by the time you're done listening? I don't know. There are so many interesting links that have been found between personality traits and the music you're most into. Blues, jazz, classical, and folk fans are associated most with openness towards new experiences. That would make sense especially with jazz, which is very freeform. There's a very interesting connection seen as well between fans of techno and disco music and being vegetarian. Studies have also found that the more open a person is in other areas of life, the more open they are not just to more types of music, but they also tend to prefer layered, unique, complicated pieces and or more intense, rebellious music but more of a full song, not just a chill vibe. Studies are mixed about rock and metal music. Some studies have shown a negative correlation between liking rock and heavy metal and being conscientious. But a separate study totally contradicted that, so do with that what you will. A journal of research on music cognition found a clear correlation between the familiarity of music, cultural exposure to it, and liking it which makes sense. There are a lot of studies actually about different behaviors we respond to more positively if the people around us do. Like if you're watching a movie and everyone in the theater laughs at something, you don't think it's that funny, but you're more likely to laugh at it too because everyone else is. There are even studies where people have been given a placebo for drinks in red cups, and they take the red solo cups, drink, and act drunk despite it being a fake. So people respond with the emotions expected of them in that environment. The journal called Current Psychology noted that your preferences do change with the seasons, as K-pop stars seem to understand. They often release a song perfect for summer, a song perfect for winter, etc. And there is a preference psychologically for lighter, more energetic music in spring and summer, and more moody, contemplative works in winter. But pop music is the genre with the most consistent enjoyment, regardless of season. You know how people are talking about Sad Girl Autumn or whatever? Those people, you may be like, are you okay? Yes, they might be very okay, because the most common reported feelings after listening to sad music are nostalgia, peacefulness, and wonder. There have been some very specific studies about extroverted people their music preferences. So if you're the opposite of me, listen up. Extroverts are more likely to like happy, upbeat, and fast music. They're more likely to put on background music when doing other activities, although another study pointed out that whether you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you listen to music in the background or not, shows no clear difference in productivity level, whether you're distracted or not. Music therapists tend to be extroverts, and a study from Turkey saw that extroverts preferred rock, pop, and rap because they wanted to dance along. Which makes sense if you think about it. Sad Girl Autumn, not the same as the kind of song you get to break dance to in a club or something. 
One study done by a research company called The Echo Nest used Spotify data to find out people tend to stop listening to new music at the average age of 33. Quote, until the early 30s, mainstream music represents a smaller and smaller proportion of their streaming. And for the average listener, by their mid-30s, their tastes have matured and they are who they're going to be. Apparently, the decline in pop music listening is much more rapid and starts at a much younger age for men, probably due to these social-cultural assumptions about who's into bubblegum pop, as it's called. Let me tell you, though, at K-pop concerts, some of the coolest people have been the groups of guys who show up. Sometimes they recreate a music video outfit even. They're just living a life without caring if they're in the minority of the audience. They unapologetically love K-pop. It is just so cool to see. And I have a feeling a lot more would attend K-pop events in person if there wasn't that social stigma around men doing so. I do want to have a larger discussion sometime on this show about how this, I would argue, this trend of men turning away from listening to mainstream pop music or whatever earlier in life and at a faster rate, I want to argue for that being more social than anything psychological. Another interesting tidbit from this study. If you're a parent, it seems to age your music interests by only about four years. If you have prior music training, instrument lessons, vocal lessons, etc., you're more likely to like music that provokes conflicted feelings, more complex emotions. Psychology of music studies show a lot of traits that once again bring up things that I think are more social than psychological, but women were found to respond to music in more emotional ways and be more likely to show a preference for pop music. Men preferred a heavier bass sound. However, that heavier bass sound was also associated with the people with antisocial personality traits, regardless of male or female or any other identity. A study in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence said that adolescents show this link between having low self-esteem and liking heavy metal music. Adolescents who are more content with their lives showed more flexibility and variety and openness in their music listening habits. I honestly used to not like Twice. I didn't listen to their music or other K-pop girl groups like that because I just was not in a good place mentally. And any thought of cheer up music, super high-pitched, sugary sweet, rainbows and butterflies, girl group music just annoyed me. So I wrote off that whole subcategory of K-pop. Now I'm obsessed, I love Twice so much and similar groups. And I didn't realize until in hindsight, but maybe it was partly because of me being in a new place in my life, which doesn't necessarily mean you're more likely to like the bubblegum stuff, but you're more likely maybe to like a broader range of music than you opened yourself up to earlier in life. Just something to think about. There's a really fascinating MIT study that looked at music and the reactions to it from a remote tribe in the Amazon. So people with little to no exposure to Western music. They found that those people's sonic preferences were cultural, not biological. They also found that C and G note combinations more pleasing than a mix of C and F chords. 
Apparently, people who like Western music in general and people who make Western music prefer a C and G chord combination as opposed to a C and F combination. But this tribe from the Amazon found both chord combinations equally pleasant. Both groups, Western and in the Amazon, could hear the difference. But in the West, people were turned off by one of those combinations. They were more open to it. Again, suggesting that a lot of this is social, not biological, psychological, etc. Similarly, studies have shown that pop music preferences have a lot to do with your social group and certain stereotypical, I guess you could say, ways you're expected to respond to music, and even each other. These researchers who thought about the psychological sense of community that comes from the music you like listed four dimensions and sometimes a fifth, belonging, fulfillment of needs, influence, and shared connections. Lastly, there's a really interesting piece about the fan economy, merchandise, the psychology behind the physical products, photocards and stuff we buy for our faves. It was called Symbols for Sale, at least for now, Symbolic Consumption in Transition Economies. Quote, if the manufacturer understands that he is selling symbols as well as goods, he can view his product more completely. He can understand not only how the object he sells satisfies certain practical needs, but also how it fits meaningfully into today's culture. Both he and the consumer stand to profit. Translation? K-pop fans, our favorite albums, photocards, posters, it's so much more than photocards. So much more than posters. These are our prized possessions, because we keep the meaning over time. With a lot of goods, you buy it, and over time, the value drops because it's used. But with something as priceless as getting your biases photocard, both the consumer and the seller can profit. You might resell the photocard when that person's no longer your bias 24 hours later. You might repurpose it. Maybe that photocard is not your phone case anymore, but it becomes part of a collage on your wall. We find ways to keep adding this value in our lives to the merch we order, which is part of the reason we have a sustained passion for our faves, because we can have these physical signs of our devotion, reminding us of our own devotion all the time. This piece looked at what was called the new economy of fandom, where fans play five roles. Sponsors for your faves, very much what K-pop fans do, birthday ads for their faves, other grassroots marketing, co-creators, making your own merch and selling it often, stakeholders, meaning we metaphorically do invest in them, investors, kind of the same thing, but whatever, and filters who alter the meanings over time of the music and what it represents to us, keeping it interesting to us. This study predicted that going forward, there would be more and more of a democratization of fandom behavior thanks to social media's lowered entry barrier and the removal of these corporate intermediaries influencing how we interpret stuff. We can read press releases, but we also can skip that and break down our true interpretation, our summaries, our subjective summaries of an artist's work, and hash that out on social media without looking at intermediary messages. Lastly, this piece looked at four phases of consumerism. First is the pre-emergent phase. 
There's hardly any access, but consumers are aware of the object's existence due to media, word of mouth, and then demand starts to build. So pre-emergent phase here, let's say the JYP Entertainment new secret box, where you could basically pre-order a mystery upcoming girl group's album before we know anything about it. Not exactly the same thing because it is largely accessible, but the point is you're aware of its meaning and demand is building the more teasers are dropped about who these new members of a new group are. Then there's the emerging phase. When a product, there's minimal access. It often becomes available first to tourists, government members maybe, before just locals. But as this happens, the demand just skyrockets when we see a few elites or whatever having what we want. Here, I guess a better example would be Dalgona coffee and other products from South Korea. Maybe they're not super common to see when you're out and about in the USA, but because we've seen our faves enjoy that on Instagram, demand to be like them has skyrocketed. Third is an accelerated growth phase, where it's much easier for your average consumer to purchase the product, and then they just get enjoyment viewing themselves as modernized for getting it. Lastly, the maturity phase, when a product becomes so ubiquitous, so easily accessible, that it loses some of its appeal. There's no more exclusivity to boost its appeal. So two things can happen. It can end up becoming just whatever, losing excitement around it, or it has to take on a new meaning. It has to become this deeper and more integral part of the community's identity for it to remain in demand. So let's say, for example, buying tickets to a Beyond Live show for that SM Entertainment live stream service, Beyond Live. It's now kind of routine to go to a live stream concert, thanks to COVID. To keep Beyond Live exciting and not just another option to watch videos online for the millionth time, Beyond Live will have to be seen to people as an integral part of their community now to make it seem worthwhile. And as a fan, it is an integral part of your identity because attending shows offline or online is a part of how you continue to be a fan. Sociologically, it's one of the actions you take to affirm to yourself and others your fan status, which gives it its lasting power. It doesn't have the same hold on people for long term without being seen as an integral part of being a fan, and in today's world, that translates to being an integral part of who you are. In today's world, where your inner fan ends and where you outside of that begins is so blurry. And I see this as not a bad thing, frankly. Okay, well, there are a lot of a lot of instances where we should not stand. Like, we don't stand politicians. We hold them to account. We don't stand, I don't know what else, but something we don't lionize. We stay clear away from ever idolizing certain people, concepts, etc. But I do think fandom culture has a lot of discarded, ignored benefits. It can be amazing for you to feel so included in a group, to have all these psychological needs met we talked about, to feel like you're a key player in spreading the word about your fave, sponsorship, as they put it. Music allows us to express ourselves and tell other people who we are and learn who we are and how that changes over time. So there will always be people who call fans hysterical and want to go back to the language of musicomania diagnoses. But rather than out of the gate, 
label all fans as this problematic turn in our culture, I think we need to stop and appreciate the root causes of entering these fandoms in the first place and these emotional needs they satisfy. I hope I gave you a lot to think about, about K-pop and otherwise. More overtly K-pop-related content coming your way very soon, as well as further future defenses of fandoms, probably, as is part of my brand. Thank you all so much for listening to today's topics, and I'll talk to you all again very, very soon.